Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasters and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality, you dig? Jason is a front pocket theologian, back pocket socio-philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band. This week we take a hard left turn to the exit of Bucksnort on N2M. Just kidding, no one ever goes to Bucksnort. I recently guest spoke for an audio recording techniques class of my good friend and frequent N2M guest, Justin Patton. The topic was preparing to make an album, so in a strange twist, I am the one being interviewed and being asked questions. Warning on this one, Justin was feeling a little friskier than normal with his language, so no kids. So sit back, buckle up, and adjust the rear view. You're listening to Nashville to Memphis. All right, so we'll go ahead and start. I guess it's 11.07. This is the uh, introduction to recording class. Actually, it's, it's recording techniques one. Okay. And so it's eventually, it's going to be the first in a four-class series. We only have two classes right now. Um, and we've really just talked mostly about microphones this, this semester. Uh, we, we, we've gotten used to Pro Tools. We, we did a little bit of Pro Tools work so people can kind of, you know, make that happen. Um, and then just worked on listening to lots of different types of microphones and, and placements and moving them around and stuff. Uh, so it's super basic. But one of the things that I thought we haven't touched on, and it, it may not get touched on a lot, in terms of uh, someone who's been there and done it is trying to work with a group that needs some help, like a, a, a band that is maybe super young, doesn't necessarily know where they should be, you know, given, uh, you know, should they, should they be recording yet? Should right. they, should they be focusing more on songwriting? And I know you've been there. And so I don't know if you'd, if you'd like to approach it from the point of view of here's a bunch of mistakes to avoid, <laughs> or if you want to approach it, you know, from here's what I see currently when I'm working with younger, you know, with younger acts or whatever, but we, we definitely not touched on that at all. And when I look back and think about, you know, when I was recording groups that were nowhere near ready to record it makes you feel like a crappy engineer because you're working with people that weren't ready to record and didn't have good songs. And, and so, you know, I think maybe some engineers need to have a little bit of uh, experience or expectations there to help people figure out how to bring them along. Yeah. So can you talk about that at all, wherever you want to start's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can talk about it kind of from three perspectives. One is my own as an artist. And then two, as uh, a producer that's that's worked with some younger acts um and then also just so from the perspective of the younger act too 
before you get going, tell us tell us about yourself so people know. Because I, I told them that you're the chair of uh, Music Business Invisible, but just give them a real quick 30, 60 seconds who, who Dr. Jason McKinney is. Uh, well, I am 6'3 and from Indiana. I grew up across my cornfield. That's actually not a lie. Justin can attest to this. There was a cornfield across from my house. Uh, no, I am a recording artist. I have been for a long time. I've done quite a bit of production as well. Um, I still occasionally hire out and get a producer because you always want fresh perspective and there are people better at it than me. And then I'm also a professor uh, of music business uh, as well as I also run a master's program. I do a little doctoral advising. Um, and I've toured everywhere from Middle East to Poland to France, Germany, Africa, um, toured all over the world. And I'm a podcaster, and I'm also a father of four, uh, two of which are grown. One is in an emo band that tours the world, and the other is a uh, music minister that's moving to Bangkok to uh, head up music at a large church there. So uh, my daughter's in a music theater, and I even have a five-year-old who plays drums. So very musical family. Uh, so yeah, and, and the good thing as far as this topic goes, is uh, I've kind of always been a working man's musician. Uh, made a living, but certainly by no means famous or no means do a lot of people know my name or, you know, um, other than a couple places in Europe, um, I certainly am not very high on the, on the fame. But the good news about that is I've had to learn how to be very efficient. Um, and kind of that's one of the things I want to talk about because no matter what you're doing, uh, whether it's a producer or you're an artist or whatever, uh, efficiency is really important, especially um, with the way the music business has changed over the last few years, uh, now over a decade, and that people don't have the budgets they used to have. Budgets are just small, and if they're smaller for labels, then it means they're smaller for producers, which means they're smaller for engineers, and they're smaller for artists. So efficiency's gotten to be very, very important. You know, you hear about albums made like Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes or Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and they took a year, and they would go in and not know any of the songs, none of the songs would be done, and they would just experiment with sounds. And, uh, and I do think that that makes art turn out better. It, there is a quality that you can achieve that you can only achieve with time and money. Um, but because there's always triple constraints on everything, and that is time, quality, and money, and you can't have all of them. You got to pick them. Uh, so it's very important to be efficient. If you want a quality recording and you want it for cheap, you're going to have to manage your time very, very, very efficiently. Um, so one of the things I've always done as an artist, and I've always encouraged artists, is do a lot on the front end. Pre-production is everything. Uh, Pre-production is very, very important. Not only make sure the songs are there, you can't, you just can't let little details go. Like, oh, that one lyric in the second verse bothers me, but we'll fix it in the studio. Anytime you find yourself thinking that, just don't fix anything in the studio. Studio is literally, uh, should be coming in and laying down tracks. The other thing is thinking about how you're gonna record, uh, record efficiently. What do you need the studio for? What, what can you do at home? So like, a lot of times I'll do my background vocals at home and not in the big studio. I'm a huge proponent of recording live, meaning getting a bunch of people in the room and recording it all at the same time. 
on one hand, it makes it a really big nightmare for the engineer to have to mic everything and isolate everything. But um, you're literally running down things. And I also don't try to get the perfect take. What I do is depend on every individual musician trying to get their individual uh, preferred take. So you record a song, you're going to record it four, maybe five times straight through. If you mess up, keep going. And if you're doing it to a click track, uh, the drummer should say, hey, take one is mine. The keyboard player says, take two is mine. And then you throw that all together, and then you basically punch in from there, uh, which means you just go in and fix little spots. Basically, in that way, you don't spend any more. Once you get sound set up, which will take you know three, four, five hours, it should take you an hour. If you're spending any more time than an hour on a song as far as getting the tracks down, you weren't prepared enough. Um, you should be laying it down and moving on. Um, now, once again, like I said, that wasn't the way records were all, all, always made, but efficiency is just so incredibly important. Things can be effective and not efficient. Uh, who has seen that movie about Ray Kroc, the McDonald's movie? Anyone seen that? Nope. It was a good movie. You should watch it. It's on Netflix. Um, Ray Kroc is the guy that sort of took over uh, somewhat unscrupulously McDonald's, you know, the guys that first started McDonald's. The reason he wanted that restaurant is every little burger joint in America made burgers effectively. I mean, everyone can make a burger, put it on a bun, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onions, all that. But McDonald's was the first one to create a process to where it was all done mechanically and it was done in a more efficient manner. So efficiency is doing things the best way, what they call in business world, the leanest way. You've heard about lean management. Anyone heard of lean management? It's cheap management. What'd you say, Justin? I mean, cheap management. <laughs> well, no, not necessarily, but just doing things as uh, it, everything from like a manufacturing where they would uh, study the movement of people uh, and make their movements most efficient. Uh, they're where they're moving the least amount to screw on the lug nuts. The same thing can be done in the studio. What is the most efficient way? So even down to like the order that you record songs down to like, you know, if you're going to have to have originally, if you're going to have to hire an mandolin player or a horn section, don't record one of the horn songs at the beginning of the day and then go two hours and record another, get them all at once. And I always say, start with your most complex most involved song instrumentally so that as the day goes on you can dismiss people so okay we're done with horns now now we're done with fiddle now we're done with this and now we're done with the background background singers the reason is um and this may sound like super cheapskate and it probably is but as the day goes on you want to be able to feed less people too so everything you need to look at it how can you cut the most cost at every angle whether it's feeding people or using their time wisely. Um, the other thing is a big thing is negotiating. Uh, when you record with somebody is also very important. Uh, getting them either in the dead of summer or in right around this time of year, engineers and studios can't find enough work. And so you can come in and say, hey, my budget is this. I can't move off of it at all. You can either work for me cheap or you can not work at all. And I've been able to work with some pretty big Grammy award-winning producers because I picked the right time of year and they don't have any other work. So that's also a part of the efficiency is making your budget. So on the pre-production, you need to have the songs down. 
You also need to know what sound you're going for. Um, and that's everything from a snare drum sound down to, are you going to go for a lot of reverb? How do you plan for that reverb? Are you going to have a dry sounding recording? Um, what all extra musicians do you need? How are you going to set up the night before? Can you get in the studio for free the night before and set up? And that way you're not spending time that you're paying for setting up. Basically tell the studio, Hey, I know your session gets over at midnight. Can we come in at 1am and just set our stuff up? And then that way, all we're doing in the morning is miking it. We're not wasting time setting stuff up. Down to uh, getting a very strict budget and making sure you stick to it and being willing to cut costs. That's particularly important for a producer slash engineer because they're going to agree to do a project for a certain budget. And as the project goes over budget and recording, it generally cuts into their profits not the studios and not the bands. So you want to get a budget and be very efficient with it. That's, that's kind of the breakdown of my philosophical approach. I call it frugality. My wife calls it cheap. Um, but I've been able to pull off, um, I pulled off a triple EP, 18 songs for $5,000. And people would know, and I did it at Ardent Studios, which is, they recorded all of Stevie Ray Vaughan and ZZ Top and Isaac Hayes stuff. So. Um, I didn't have the sales results they did, but it's a great sign of record. So, uh, does that answer that? That was more than 30 seconds, but that's my general philosophy. And I can get into much more specifics, Justin, but I didn't know what you're looking for there to kick it off. Well, I, that, that was good. I've got other questions too, but I want to make sure nobody else has anything that they're thinking of before I jump in. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So, and, I, and I've watched jason work now it was several years ago so you've probably honed a lot of this you know more with more detail over the last four or five years as opposed to six or seven years ago but you were still on this track pretty pretty well six or seven years ago yeah. uh, to the point where uh everything you know there, there wasn't any wondering about well gosh i just don't feel like that vocal was there. I mean, you, you knew what the vocal was supposed to sound like and you knew if it was or wasn't there, you weren't sitting around trying to emote into some new place that you'd never been before. So you were able to evaluate yourself right. effectively. Um, and not just the vocal, but even the songs. What I think people are used to because we do have this availability to record in your home and, and, and the big benefit of recording at your house is you can waste as much time as you want, you know? So people get used to kind of being non-committal and just kind of throwing ideas out there and seeing if anything will stick um, to the point that they almost get lost. They don't know if they, if they, they never know if they've arrived, um, you know? And, and so then that, some, that spills over into the studio where they're like, you know what? We just need to go into the studio and make this happen but they bring that same mentality into the studio right. and they get just as lost in the studio, except for now they're paying lots of money to get lost instead of just being at home, not bothering anybody, you know? Um, so what I'm wondering, Hey man, come on. What I'm wondering is, is there a way, um, you know, and this, this is like rolling backwards a little bit in, in the discussion, you know, we're talking about a band that, has never recorded before and is still kind of trying to find their sound and still trying to figure out if their songs are good. How, how do you 
you know, coach a band like that to you know, kind of start to, to hone in on what makes sense for them to do next before they go to the studio. Yeah, that's good. That, that's several things. One is, I, I mean, take advantage of your home computer. I mean, but use it towards the end of, <clears throat> so go through as many iterations of a song as you need to would be my advice, but you're doing it towards the aim of landing on it. So you can rehearse it. It is well worth paying musicians to rehearse the song. And also, just as a little side note, learn Nashville numbers. Just, just learn them. Just make charts for everyone so that nobody gets lost. You're talking about measure 42 there where we're playing the four over six chord. Like, you need to know that language. But you're getting towards the end of what can we pull off in the studio? And pull off in the studio is kind of a nebulous sort of concept. But you need to know um, your limitations. Uh, limitations are not necessarily a bad thing. We take them as a bad thing. There's this old sort of a Gaelic concept of goals, which is G-O-L-S. And we think about, especially in our aspirational culture, about goals. Here are our goals. I'm going to reach this. I'm going to risk. Well, goals are, they were just the brick that they would put around farms, the stones that they would put around farms to basically outline the boundaries. <clears throat> All the great bands uh, learned what they do well and what they do not do well. And they are able to take those limitations and use them to their advantage. Uh, so that is part of the process of pre-production as well, is what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? And what can we pull off effectively? And it takes a real ability to be honest with yourself and so for young bands, I think it's pretty necessary to either have a producer or to have somebody further along in the business that you're willing to let them cut deep because it's kind of like being a child. A band is like a child. You know, part of growing up is learning what you're not good at. Um, I know that we're supposed to tell kids that you can be anything you want in life, but that's just the biggest load of hooey that, that there's ever been. Um, you know, if, you're, if your parents were five foot tall and couldn't walk down the steps without tripping over themselves, um, you're probably not going to play in the NBA. No matter how hard you try and how much you dream, you're not going to be able to do it. So it's okay to eliminate some things. It's okay to say, you know what we're not good at? We're not good at X. Or to have somebody else tell you that. Sometimes you're not your own best evaluator. And then also... If you're a new band, you're going to be eliminate some sounds because of just budget. I mean, you're not you too. You're not going to have endless amounts of money. You're not Bruno Mars. You're not going to be able to spend all this time. Uh, and I still have to do that today. I had to cut on a record I have in the can. I had to cut horns. We could either spend an extra day having female background singers cut some more stuff, or we could hire in horns. Had to make a decision. One had to go. Which one was more important? So... All that to say is when you're in that process of rehearsing the material and writing the material, that's where you take all the time to make mistakes. That's where you take all the time to let the, that one guy that you know that made it out of your hometown that's making a living in music, let him hear it. That's when you get really, uh, you don't ask your mom ever because your mom's always going to love everything you do. Never ask mom. She's a liar. She's going to love everything that you do. But you ask people who can really tell you the truth because what you don't want to do is like Justin said, when you go to the studio and you're doing that, you're wasting time and money. And I'm going to go back to the triple constraints. 
you can either have quality, you can have, the triple constraints are quality, time, and money. You can have two of the three, but you are gonna pick two of the three. So if you didn't spend a lot of time in pre-production, and you didn't allow yourself to be criticized, and you really didn't allow yourself to be humble in pre-production, then you're gonna end up costing yourself quality, or you're gonna cost yourself money on the back end. It's just preparation. You have to be prepared. You have to know exactly how the song's arranged. You're gonna to have to know, after you've been through five sets of lyrics, exactly how you want the lyrics recorded. You're gonna to need to know what are you going for in a vocal performance, and what is realistic for you. You're only gonna have an hour to cut the vocal, so you're not all of a sudden going to start singing the most amazing gospel runs ever if that's not who you are and you're not automatically good at it. So one of the things singers do is they go, well, in the studio, I'll really go for that high note there. Well, if you're not consistently hitting that high note at home on your garage band or you're not consistently hitting that high note when the band rehearses, you're not hitting it in the studio. So just eliminate it. Just get rid of it. So you only need to... The studio is not a place to experiment. It is a place to execute. Does that answer the question, Justin? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, uh, I wish there was a magic way to, uh, to help people get um, the drive required to take care of business before the studio. Because there are some people who, like yourself, although no one would have believed it when you were 15 years old, <laughs> you've got a ton of drive and a lot of people you know and so it may be maybe for people who have a lot of natural drive it's easier to take care of that ahead of time um but there's a lot of folks that just you know without the experience to have taught them that this is true it's going to be really really hard for them to put the work in until they learn the hard way you know until they have to spend a bunch of money or until they put out a bunch of crappy CDs, and right. then they realize, well, if I want this to be better, I guess I'm going to have to change something. Um, and sometimes, you know, we're I, I'm working in an educational institution, so we're not charging you know anybody money. We're we're grabbing people that we think are going to be useful for educational purposes, and so it's not a uh, good representation of the real world. You know, it's, there's no budget. There's nobody worried about, you know, paying anything. And maybe that'll change in the future at some point if we get more stuff lined up like a business, you know, down the road. But for right now, that's the big thing that, that um, is totally missing in terms of anybody that comes in. It feels very much like a home studio. We're just experimenting, which is fine. You know, we're just, we're, cause we're just learning. We're, you know, we're just trying to learn. Um, but same thing with an engineer. It's okay to waste time, you know, if you're all just doing it to learn. You know, like, like if you're a brand new green engineer, it's probably fine for you to take on a brand new green band that's not ready to record anyway. Because neither one of you are really ready to do anything at a professional level. It's okay to, to goof around and, and, and fool around and, and make, make, you know, make mistakes. But at some point, if you're both serious about becoming professionals then you do got to step you have to step it up right yeah and it's preparation is so important and the other thing i'll say is just humility and being able to be honest with yourself um i am not a great guitar player so uh i generally while live i play a lot of electric guitar and i play even leads 
in the studio? Hardly ever do. Because there's somebody more qualified and better to do it than I am, and I'm going to pay them to do it because they're going to do it much more efficiently. It's going to save me money than for me sitting there for hours and hours trying to get it right. Um, that's okay. You can be a great, I've produced a couple records where the lead singer was amazing, but they didn't hear harmony and they wanted to do all the harmony themselves. And after a complete wasted entire day in the studio, I was like, look, you will eventually get this. Let me encourage you. You will eventually get this correct, but you need to be willing to spend another thousand dollars to do that because it's going to take you some time. And I said, or I know a background singer that hears harmonies. That's what they do every day for a living. And we can pay them $200 and they can knock this out in a half a day. Choice is yours. Always the, as a producer, ultimately the artist is in charge. Choice is yours. But I need to lay it out to you very clearly that if you want to do this yourself, because you are not yet great at it, even though you're a phenomenal lead singer, you're not great at hearing the harmony. Even if you got it down in a day, in a day I'm still going to have to allow the engineer to take a second day to tune what you laid down, which is going to cost more money. Or there's this professional who does it for a living and is really good at it. And what I would suggest is showing up and learning from them. There's an old story, uh, Kenny Aronoff, who was the drummer for John Cougar Mellencamp. Uh, I know anyone younger in the room has no idea who that is. But uh, for old people like me, he was a big deal, especially growing up in Indiana. Well, the first album that Kenny Aronoff played on with John Cougar, he got replaced. Uh, after the first day, they're like, hey, this isn't working. We're going to bring in a more experienced drummer. What he did is he had the humility. He showed up the next day. And John, uh, John, Johnny Cougar, as he was called at the time, said, hey, you're not on this session. He's like, I know, but I'm going to sit in this drum room and I'm going to watch everything the guy does so that next time this will never happen again to me. Now, that sounds a little bit conceited. But it's also that humility to know if we want to make a great record right now, we're going to have to hire somebody else in it. But I'm going to use that as a learning experience to be able to go. So it, I think the biggest problem with young artists is they generally think they're a little better than they think they are. And they're a little more prepared than they think they are. And they need someone to be very kindly honest with them. And there's a balance there too because uh, I had a producer uh, early on in my career. I signed my first record deal and I had a producer. I couldn't get this harmony right. And after a while, he slams off his headphones and he says, are you going to effing get this right or not? And I was like, and I said in the microphone, well, I'm not now because that doesn't build a lot of confidence for me. So we ended up breaking. So there's a way to be firm. And I think to me, just it's laying it out going, hey, we can con continue to try to fight this. And if we do, uh, we're probably going to get it eventually, but it's going to cost you money. Or if you want to do it and you don't want to spend the money, you're going to have to live with the fact that it's probably going to be a little out of tune, these background vocals, or we can just hire somebody else in. They can do it really fast because it's what they do every day. Um, I, don't, I hope that answers that question, Justin. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's um, The way I see it is, a lot of us, and I put myself into this camp of people, a lot of us like staying just a little bit outside of the cold, hard world of professional music. <laughs> because when you stay on the outside, everything's a little softer and more gentle, and the stakes aren't as high, and you can take five years for your solo project, 
to, to get recorded if you're doing it all at home, you know. Um, and you don't ever have to really deal with, you know, the, the producer yelling at you over the, over the headphones or any type of painful honesty in terms of I can't sing this part like I want to sing it. Um, and I think it's really hard because, you know, there's also, there's the business side of it, but there's the art, the artistic side of it too. And so, you know, you're trying to make both of those worlds work, but sometimes they are radically different from each other. You know, like the, the art side doesn't care about the business side in right. terms of whether this was a genuine piece of art or not that got recorded. Um, but if you're, if you're having to spend money, then the business side has to, has to come into play at some point. Um, so it's, it's, I think most of us, because we, again, we can work at home, we can do all this stuff. We can find ways around paying somebody. Uh, and so we tend to try that. I had a project last semester that, you know, I, I looked out, I think I, I paid Brian Mullins gas money and bought him lunch to drive down here and record, right? And for the people that got to sit in here and watch him play, it was pretty damn cool because we don't actually have rock drummers like Brian Mullins just, you know, walking up and down the halls. And so it was like, oh, that's what it sounds like when a dude that play drums plays drums. I get now why my CD sucks because I didn't have that dude playing drums for me. Holy hell, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and I wouldn't have known Brian if it weren't for you bringing Brian, you know, to a session like five or six years ago or however long it was now. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, that uh, we, we, we still manage, you know, I still manage to just be like, Brian's a nice guy. Yeah. He didn't have to. <laughs> what other dude is going to drive down here for gas money and lunch just to help, you know, just to help a brother out. Yeah, but that's Brian is one of the nicest humans you'll ever meet. I mean, he's, he's not just nice. He's incredibly nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, therefore we, we take advantage of him. <laughs> we say, Brian, come on and play some more for us. And he's like, okay. Um, but where I'm going with that is that, uh, you know, I, he, he came down and he worked with this artist that we had and, and um, you know, and I, I I paid him out of my pocket. You know, the university didn't pay him. Murray State didn't pay him. The artist didn't pay him. I just wanted the guy to be, be here because I thought it was going to be really beneficial for people to see, see this guy work. Um, so I paid him out of my pocket. And then we got a little further down and we wanted some more things. And I said, okay, I've, I know some folks. There's a, there's a, I got a connection with the guy that plays with Tanya Tucker's band and some of her people will record stuff, you know, dirt cheap and send it back to you from Nashville if you send them something. Um, and these guys are gonna be pretty good, right? They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna get way closer than someone who doesn't actually touch a dobro, really. Right. But he sort of understands how it's supposed to work. And he's gonna put the dobro part down because he's free or we can pay somebody 80 bucks. 80 bucks, right? Yeah. Just, just to send you a dobro part. I'm like, that's worth it. That's worth it to me. I mean, but, I, but, but I'm also out of money. I've spent all the money that I can pony up because this isn't my project. I'm right. not getting from this. This is somebody else's project. So I'm out of money. And it's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to go with this other dude. And it's like, 
okay, well, that's fine because, again, like you said, the artist has to make the decision. Um, and, and the project, you know, it was over. I mean, but, but I ended up spending hours and hours piecing the dobro part together for it to not be bad. And Scott Feely comes in and he's like, okay, well, this sounds like a dobro here, but that doesn't sound like a dobro there. So get rid of that. So, you know, behind the scenes, you've got usually people busting their ass trying to put it together. And in an educational situation, it's not a problem because nobody's paying any money. But at some damn point, you leave college and no more, no more is there somebody who's just like, you know, making it rain hundred dollar bills anymore so that stuff's going to go your way. Um, and if we haven't at some point in college, right, like help people at least mentally prepare for that, then it's going to be a, a tough uh, realization down the road. Yeah, and let me say that one of the things I, I probably need to clarify is I said, you know, get people at the right time of year and all that stuff. I don't just mean any people. So, like I said, I, I recorded, a, you know, an 18-song record at Ardent Studios. Ardent Studios is legendary. But, and I got them really cheap, and I got them in December. But I didn't go to Joe's Garage Studio down the street with four SM57 microphones and try to do the same thing. I, you know, I, uh, you know, I couldn't afford to bring a fiddle player in on that last record, Sacred Southern Soul, but I knew I wanted somebody really good. So I did leverage relationships. Relationships are a very important thing. They are more important than talent, period, is your relationships in music. And so I called up a guy I know that plays fiddle very well, his name is Sean Lane. And I was like, hey, Sean, um, I can't pay you to come in the studio, but I would love to have you on it. I know you have a rig at home. I tell you what, I only have 200 bucks, but I can be very patient and I can wait two weeks for you to get this to me or even three weeks and you can take your time and you can do it from home and you can send me the tracks. And Sean was like, sure, man, if you give me time, I'll do it. I know I keep saying back to the triple constraints. I knew I wanted quality and I knew I didn't have a lot of money, so I had to give him time. If I would have said, hey man, I need it excellent and uh, I, don't, uh, I can't wait, you gotta have it to me tomorrow or two days from now, he would have said, great, $600. You can't have it all, so you gotta have one or the other. So you, know, you have two of the three. So, now, so all that to say is that I will pick and choose when I do something, and I will try to work things out on the cheap, but I do pick particular people that I know can execute it, because ultimately it's going to cost you more money to have it done halfway or half-ass. Pay the people that know how to do it to do it. Try to catch them on an off time. Try to work out a deal with them. Try to you know give them a little scratch in their back to scratch your back, all that stuff. Try to do all of it, but do hire the right people because there are people that are just better and it's going to save you a lot of headache. Um, I think, Justin, if you would have brought in Rob Ikes, you probably wouldn't have had to edit as much. We talked about Rob. We did. Yep, yeah, yeah. He can play a little bit. <laughs> so the great thing about me and Jason's relationship is we leverage each other from time to time but it's a mutual beneficial thing. Like I wouldn't be able to drop Rob Ike's name as somebody that I've worked with if I didn't work with Jason because Rob Ike's was working with Jason. I wouldn't have Brian Mullins as a dude that's nice enough to come down and do stuff if I hadn't worked with Jason. 
and Jason's gotten some free recording out of this, you know, um, which is not, not all of it's been free, but, but the Rob Ike session was free. Right. And, um, and I was walking around like, like there was no problems in the world because, you know, I'm not charging any money at all. So it's like, I told Jason, I was like, man, if this thing sucks, it doesn't matter. Cause I'm not, I'm not getting paid. And Jason was just like, please don't make this thing suck. Uh, I'm paying, I'm paying Rob Ikes to come down here and record this. So it's, it's a good thing to, uh, to go out there on a limb and, uh, and, and sacrifice something, you know, like, like I sacrificed a session for free, but for the rest of my life now, I can be like, remember that time Rob Ikes asked me for more reverb in his headphone mix, you know? And nobody else can say that, you know, not around here because damn it, nobody else besides me worked with Rob Ikes, but I can thank Jason for that. Um, it's, it's, but it's gotta be calculated though. You can't just be a doormat and just work for free all the time. So it makes really good sense to pick and choose who you're going to do favors for and make sure you never burn bridges with people. You never, you never take such advantage of somebody that they are, they now hate your guts because they look like you're like a moocher and that's something you got to be really careful about. Um, and I think as you get older, you get better about gauging those things, you know, in terms of whenever I talk to Brian Mullins now, I'm always like, Hey, Brian, how much would it take to get you down here for something? And it depends on whether he's, you know, he may be no longer available if, if they keep blowing up like they've been blowing up on uh, Spotify's playlists. I don't know. They look like they're getting busier. Um, they are. They're definitely getting busier. But it's it's something to be looking out for now because there may be people that you're working with right now in college that are going to be doing something down the road that you want to, you know, make sure that you keep those relationships functional and healthy. Um, and they'll they may pay off in ways you can't you can't imagine right now. Yeah, and I'll I'll say this, my experience, and I I am, and this isn't like name dropping, but I am I am friends legitimately friends with a lot of quote unquote famous people. And I talk about your network being meaningful at the end of the day, people want to know that you actually care about them for who they are. Um, the people that I know that are famous are so used to people coming at them for something that they are very guarded against that. And they just want to know that you actually care about them as a human being. And you know, Justin talked about burning bridges. The fastest way to burn a bridge is for somebody to think that you're only, you only care about them for what you can get out of them or what you can get from them. Um, so the actual being a decent human being thing actually does matter even in business. Um, it, it definitely matters. Um, and I, I side, you know, we talk about the art business thing. I definitely side with the artistic side. I think we should be experimental. I think most pop music's crap. I think, uh, that we should go back to greater harmonic and melodic differences and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But like I said, I think in this day and age where budgets are tight, the experimentation comes before the studio. So you can still be experimental like Radiohead. You can still be experimental like the Beatles were back in the day with their four tracks. But you do that before you go into the studio. By the time you get into the studio today, because nobody can afford to be there forever, that is execution time. And you need to be overly prepared. So do all the artistic experiment stuff. I mean, definitely I've got, you know, I got a song that's in E Phrygian with a B chicken picking lead over it. Um, that took some, 
that took some doing. I've got seven minute songs. I've got, I've definitely got some stuff that's not normal. Uh, Justin and I recorded a song that I wrote for my wife that the verse is in G major and the chorus is in F major and the transition chord is a flat five. So I, I'm definitely down with doing artistic stuff, but all that preparation went in before the studio. We went into the studio, we knew exactly what was gonna happen. Um, so that's my advice there. Just, you know, uh, as I just put on a music industry conference uh, a couple of weeks ago down in Memphis, and one of my speakers was Kevin Houston, who's a really big producer. I actually just got through working with him. Um, he's worked with everyone from Buddy Guy, who you won't know who he is, but he's an old blues guy. Oh, you do know Buddy Guy is? Yeah, he's worked with Buddy Guy to Patty Griffin to Lucero. Uh, he does all the North Mississippi All-Star stuff. He's um, really, really, really well-known. He's worked with Robert Plant, um, otherwise known as Greta Van Fleet's uh, biggest influence, even though they won't admit it. And, uh, and he's really big. And he said, uh, somebody asked, what's the, what's the most important thing about being a studio musician? And I think this applies to everything. And he said, yeah, you got to be good. You got to have good tone, um, but your biggest asset is don't be an asshole. So, um, and I think that applies to everything in business, in, in the music business. Generally care about people, try to be cool, go with the flow. Know that when you get into a studio, not everything's going to go perfect. In fact, you can guarantee something is going to go wrong. So even as a part of my efficient planning, I plan for a couple hours of fluff time because something is going to be, they call it in project management, management slack time because there's going to be, you have to build in some slack time because something's not going to go right. Especially when we're dealing with technology and computers, something's going to go wrong. So uh, be efficient, be patient, be prepared. Don't be a jerk. Those are the, those are the things I think can get no matter what you're, no matter what side of it you're on. If you're on the engineer side, the producer side, the artist side, even just a mentor side, those are the things that, that can go a long way. And they sound trite, but sometimes things are trite because they're true. So uh, I think that's, I mean, that, that's something else. So sorry to jump in there, Justin. I just had that. I had a passionate burning to express that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Nashville to Memphis. We truly appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, go on to your podcast provider on iTunes and give us a rating. Write us a couple sentences telling everyone how great we are. Ratings should be five stars and nothing below. I love doing this podcast, but like everything else, it costs money to make. So if you would, to show some support, go to Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and stream some of our music. We have seven albums out, and it would mean a lot if you'd share it with your friends and tell everyone else about us, the Jason Lee McKinney Band. And speaking of supporting my music... Here's a little sample for you, a song you can sit back and enjoy while you're riding down the road. August and 17th, sending can be so mean. Pulled up to your street in the summer heat. Came out the door looking like my future Please for one more reckless night Neither said but we both knew I was going to bed, you were leaving for school I ain't a genius but I'm no fool Had one last chance in your eyes to be cool So I asked for the dawn if I could play the song I told you I'd made it there
said in the moment stolen all my fear Play me something you believe Something I can questions uh we've been talking for a while i don't want to keep anybody from asking you and it doesn't, doesn't even have to be related okay it doesn't have to be related to the topic necessarily um jason i'll answer anything yeah <laughs> jason has uh you know he he started like anybody else you know just with terrible horrible bands awful drum playing <laughs> terrible singing and oh here we go i have a question that's not necessarily related to the recording okay. aspect of it what you said building your network and the genuine network is really important what was the most difficult part about starting to build that network and what advice do you have for starting to build that network for upcoming graduates yeah that's a great question um well one i'll tell you this um i am painfully introverted um and so I don't come into the room and announce myself. Uh, that's not my thing. Uh, but there is hope for introverts to um, network. And here's the, the genuine approach that I do. There's three things. One is I try to get one-on-one -on -one conversations because as an introvert, I'm much better at one-on-one -on -one conversations than I am talking in a group. I can perform in front of 10,000 people, but you put me in a room of 50 and just like a general party, like a holiday party. And I will to this day, literally hide my six foot three frame behind my five foot six extroverted wife and just plead to God, Lord Almighty above that no one talks to me. Um, but if I can, if I can get a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, I know that I'll be comfortable in that and I can relate in that. Um, that's number one. Number two is keep your ears perked up. And this is going to sound slimy, but it's not, you know where you want to go. And you will hear people as you start to hang out at different places, you'll start to hear people mention people that you know that are involved in the world that you live in, okay, that, are, that you want to live in. So like for me, uh, my buddy Steve Johnson used to run Merle Fest. Merle Fest is the largest Americana bluegrass roots festival in America. I had a friend in common with Steve. And I was like, hey, you know what? The next time you bump into Steve, Will you mention him or you mention me to him? So it's, it's kind of data mining. So if you know that there's somebody you need to know, that there's somewhere where you're at, find out who you know that knows them. Yes, it may be cyber stalking. You may be going on Facebook or Instagram and finding out who the common people are, but that's the only way you're gonna get in. And then you ask for that connection to grow and it's literally gonna grow just like a network or brain synapses work. So that one connection is going to lead to three more. Those three are going to lead to three more. And before you know it, you're going to know thousands of people, even as an introvert, not making an assumption that you are. I'm just saying I am. Then the third thing is when you do meet with them, don't talk about you. Talk about them. 
Everybody loves to talk about themselves and come into it asking advice, coming to it asking what their other interests are. So the first time I met Steve Johnson, who's a, who's a buddy of mine, and we sat down and we had coffee. He did his grad school in Indianapolis at Butler. I'm a huge Butler basketball fan. We didn't talk about music. We talked about Butler basketball the entire time. Because once again, him running the largest Roots Americana Festival in America, everyone he meets almost comes at him and asks to play there. He's so used to that question that he has the answer prepared before it ever happens. So I didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about music at all the first two or three times we met. Now, what's weird about that is, or weird in an awesome way is, we ended up playing Merle Fest. We ended up playing his Americana stage because we were friends and he liked the music. So he had to like the music. If your music sucks, it doesn't matter. But that's my three things for, is that, and those are the, the three things I would do. Don't, don't do anything, you know, don't come in and talk nothing about except for your career. And don't talk about what you want from them. Talk about what they're interested in. And then it's just utilizing the people you know and kind of stalking the people you need to know and finding out who do you know that knows them. Um, that, that's the thing. And then also, like I said, you don't have to be an extrovert to do it. Thank you. No worries. I had a, um, a friend upstairs that works in the TV program who uh, called me a couple of years ago around Christmas time and said, hey, I have a friend who needs a place to record. Can you get him into the studio? And I was at the time thinking, what a pain in the ass. I, some random dude wants to record in the studio. Sure, I'll come in around Christmas time and let this dude use the studio. But because I was like, but you know what, J Jeremy's a good guy and I want to keep, I, I want to, you know, I, I want this to be a positive thing between me and Jeremy. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I came in and I let this guy in and the guy rolls in with like a bunch of like nice gear in a little suitcase thing. And I'm instantly thinking, this is not what I expected from this random dude who's going to come in and record. And, um, as it turned out, this guy was another person that became a contact for me, you know, because he used to be in this, uh, in this Paris, Tennessee acapella group called acapella, which oh. was this, this Christian band that was church of Christ. So they don't believe in instruments. So everything that they do is acapella, including vocal percussion and all this stuff. I think you introduced me to them when I was like 15. Yeah. Well, this, this, they've been, you know, there's probably been a 5,000 people in acapella as, as the years have gone on. So this guy was toward the end of super clever name. Acapella. acapella. Yes. We're, yeah. yeah. So, but this guy, uh, this guy <laughs> connected me with a bunch of people that he's been working with. And so I have, um, I have a great connection now with uh, a guy named Darren Rust, who is a acapella producer who has worked with literally the chick from uh, Pentatonix. What's her name? Uh, There's two of them. There's two chicks. Is there two in Pentatonix? Isn't there the blonde one and the Asian one, right? Is the blonde one even in there anymore? I don't oh, know. They lost them. It was, it's, it's one of them. Anyway. Um, so, so, but the guy is really, really pro, you know, I mean, like, and, and when you're talking about acapella music, you don't just go get some random producer and say, I, I need to compete in the acapella world. I know you don't know anything about it, but you're pretty good at death metal. 
could you mix this acapella album for me? You, you don't want to do that. So I've been getting, trying to get our, our, uh, our teacher who runs our acapella group here at Murray State to, to commit to like one song, you know, let's do one song with the group here at Murray State. Let's pay for this dude to mix it for us. Um, Cause he'll do it dirt cheap. And I wouldn't have even known this guy existed if I hadn't taken, you know, the gig. Um, well, if I hadn't agreed to be a nice guy and come open the studio up, you know, for, for this dude. Um, so my, my point in telling that story is just that nine times out of 10, it's just some random guy that's taking up time, you know, on, in, on your afternoon. But once in a while, once in a while, you know, it, it's really a great, a great experience, you know, that you end up with somebody that's a good dude and is going to help, you know, it's mutually beneficial. Um, and, and, and the only reason I took it was because I knew I trusted the guy that was, you know, asking, asking for studio time. Well, if you're going to talk about that, talk about the most random thing ever. Uh, back in 1990 at a marching band camp, uh, two guys were sitting on a floor and one said, Hey, you like nutty bars? I'm going to go buy a, a little Debbie nutty bar, the machine you want to split vending machine. You want to split it with me? Yeah, cool. And they sat down and had a nutty bar and now they still work together occasionally a certain amount of years later. So that is random. <laughs> I've been rethinking whether I need to keep that connection or not. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll see you later. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, when we met, we didn't know either of us would end up working in music. We knew that we would, uh, we liked it. Um, and we knew that we liked that and we liked rock and roll and we liked girls and we didn't have a shot with girls. So we've time in rock and roll because that's the only shot we had to get girls. So we decided we'd form a band. So nice. we were not the coolest guys in the world. I'll say that. What? That was a, uh... And actually, we had probably the worst band of any band that I've ever been aware of. I think we were the poorest band. This is not the most 90s thing I've ever heard. I've, I've ever heard. Yeah. See, see they, they don't do bands anymore, right? But it was bad. It was, pretty was, bad. That, was that our band named Renaissance? Mm -hmm. That was the That might be the worst name of all time. <laughs> It wasn't as bad as the music, though. That's true. That's true. Uh, all right. Any, other, any questions? Yeah, any other questions? Uh, you're never going to have a chance to talk to somebody that works harder than this guy. I promise you. Um, he, he busts his ass, and that's why he has gotten to where he is and has done what he's done. I, I would never bust my ass as hard as he busts his ass. I'm just not going to. Yeah. You said one of your sons was in an emo band, but you didn't tell us what it was. Oh, they're just now rising up, but they're rising pretty meteorically. The band's called Idle Threat. Oh, um, my little sister listens to them. Yeah. Actually, I was at a restaurant. This will humble you. Uh, I was at a restaurant my wife and I were one time in Chattanooga. And uh, the guy saw my tattoo. One of my tattoos is of my, uh, of my guitar. And so he... Um, the waiter said, hey, so you're into music? And I was like, yeah, I'm into music. He's like, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm kind of roots, kind of soul folk-ish, country-ish, all that, all the above, anything roots. He's gone like, oh, really into emo. And I said, oh, have you, uh, my wife said, have you heard of the band Idle Threat? And he's like, 
oh my God, it's my favorite band in the world. And she's like, well, um, Zeke is our son. And she's, he's like, Zeke is my hero. He goes, how lucky are you to get to be related to him? How, how, do you just thank God every day that you get to be related to him? I was like, yeah, it, rainbows and unicorns. And, uh, he owes me for car insurance money if you see him, by the way. No, I was just saying, he, he still owes me money, but uh, no, I, I'm definitely. I'm, go ahead. It, it, it glitched on us for a second. Oh, okay. I'm saying, no, I said, just saying he still owes me money. And I was like, you know, I'm super proud of him. Uh, but yeah, he's in a band, Idle Threat. And he's the main songwriter. And um, they just did a festival in South Bend last weekend. And they're doing awesome. They're, they're really working on their third album. So doing really good. Who knew that um, growing up in music would not discourage them? And just a little side note. Uh, Zeke's middle name is Justin after Justin, so. Oh. Right. <laughs> I'm about to shed a tear. This is pure. <laughs> None of my children are named Jason. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> That's okay, though, because that was a much too popular name. <laughs> so you said your little sister listened to Idle Threat? My younger sister, she's really into underground punk bands. Yeah. She runs um, one of the radio stations down at WMTS at MTSU. Oh, oh at MTSU. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've done some um, interviews and stuff there and some podcast stuff with MTSU people. Yeah, yeah. Other questions? Yeah, um, Brent. I don't know if you can see Brent back here. That's oh. Brent. Hey. He he played with them at the at our uh, Terrapin Station, which is one of our local our local. Uh, oh, yeah, he's the really skinny one. One <laughs> <laughs> Zeke is. We we couldn't see very well because it was an unusually heavy smoking night. Also, uh, <laughs> also they have like lights on there. Yeah, Zeke works the lights as as they play. He so he plays yeah, bass so and works the lights. Yeah. Didn't really see anyone because <laughs> they're behind him. <laughs> Yeah, they dig the backlighting thing. Backlight, yeah. Anybody else? See, Kayla over here and Brent are in a different band, not the same band that played uh, that that show. Very different band. <laughs> but um, but but they. How would you characterize your band? Gosh, that's a hard question. But um, we're kind of going towards the indie folkish, uh, but with a lot of pop influences as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, that's one of our hardest uh, struggles is to find a genre and a direction that we can market because we're still just playing local, begging to play local <laughs> menus basically and trying to branch out, but it's really hard around here. Yeah, that, that whole genre thing is, you know, it didn't used to be a thing in the 70s. Like radio stations didn't so much care. They'd play Willie Nelson followed by Elton John, followed by Led Zeppelin. They just didn't care. Uh, so, and it became a thing in the eighties because we wanted to, advertisers did it because they wanted to know what demographics were listening to what. And then they wanted to base it off of what's called psychographics, which psychographics is just the behavior of a demographic. So, you know, the people who listen to Willie Nelson, they wanted to know uh, what they, what they would buy. And of course they would buy, you know, belt buckles and marijuana and trucks. So, <laughs> so, then the advertiser would advertise towards them 
and the same thing. So it's, it, it happened for a good business reason, but what it did for artists is it made us really confined, slowly confined. And, um, Americana is great because it's kind of a catch-all. It's for country radio that doesn't fit mainstream country, and it's for folk music, and it's for blues, and it's soul that doesn't really fit on anything that doesn't fit on radio that is roots American, like it's an American-based art form, kind of falls into Americana. Uh, but yeah, that whole genre definition is really weird, and people will want you to be very specific and sound just like somebody else until you make it and then they don't care anymore. But um, it's a hard thing for a lot of artists to define that very specifically. So it's, you're not the only one with that struggle. Yeah, I've been told that being too versatile and having too many strengths in different genres can actually be a weakness for you in the industry. Cause like I have a super passion for jazz as well as like folk music and a little bit of country bluegrass finger picking kind of stuff, but not all those things kind of meld together as well as I would hope. Yeah, they can though. But then you, you end up hearing like a Leon Bridges, whose first album was just like straight up 60s Sam Cooke, but his new album mixes in a lot of jazz, uh, you know. And so you get a lot of that sort of stuff. You eventually can do that. You just have to do it in a way that's pretty clever. I mean, I put out a triple EP and uh, five songs were like, um, kind of heartland rock groove five songs are straight up old school country and five songs were like memphis soul um so to try to i mean i still struggle with getting people to understand it so because like i would say that you know we were baking people chocolate cakes and strawberry cakes but then with the triple ep we just said hey you're not getting this so here's the eggs here's the flour and here's the sugar this is all we're doing all we're doing is taking these ingredients and putting them together but in that album, we separated them out and made them very clearly defined. Um, we made a delineation. So I would say just keep honing it in and try to blend those together as much as you can. So it kind of comes out more as cohesive as, po as possible. What people don't like is you jumping from one thing to the other. Um, I found that out the hard way. So <laughs> other questions, my favorite recipes, who did I vote for in the midterm elections? Uh, <laughs> Could I arm wrestle Putin and win? I mean, what? Would you know that? I do have a question about uh, the band or bands that you were a part of before you, uh, quote, made it. Were you playing like bars, like three hour sets of partially originals, partially covers? That's well, let's, let's clarify making it. <laughs> uh, I still just live in a normal house and I've not made it monetarily as far as what most people would say. I mean, and here's the thing I will encourage you. Most people say if you're, okay, so if you're an accountant uh, and you say I've made a living for 30 years and I've paid my mortgage and put my kids through college, they say you're a success. If you say you're a plumber and you've done that, they say you're a success. If you say I'm a musician or I'm a producer or an engineer and you say that like, oh, hang in there, you'll make it someday. <laughs> Wait a minute, I've, I've lived a great life. So make it is hard to define. I still do some of those three hour gigs. That's not the norm for me, but if we have to do an in route thing, um, the only places I've really made it are Europe. Um, I will play for thousands of people there, um, but here it's more hundreds. Um, but yeah, we would do, so I had kind of a couple iterations. Like uh, when I first started, I was in the Christian industry. And so we would sleep on church floors and eat pizza all the time. 
And we did 250 shows a year for four years before I ever got a record deal. And so we did all that. And then this band, when it first started, we were only doing like four hour bar gigs. Um, now where I drew the line is I would never do a four hour bar gig where it was predominantly covers. I would do covers. I still do covers. I mean, uh, we just put a live record and we have a whole medley of Sturgill Simpson and it's got like a Prince song and Sturgill Simpson and, uh, who else? Ray Wiley Hubbard all kind of mixed in together. Um, so we still do some covers. I think covers are fun. But what I never wanted to get labeled as is a cover band. Because then you're going to reach, it's going to be much, much easier to make money in the beginning. Like way easier. You could do a cover set list now and send it out to a bar and they're going to hire you for five, six hundred bucks just like that. But you're going to reach this glass ceiling. And that's all you're going to be able to do. You're going to keep bumping up against it because no label, no um, sync uh, company, no one's going to come to you and quote unquote, have you make it being a cover band. Uh, it's just, that's not how it happens. So I've done everything that you can possibly do. I have played fairs on a tractor trailer bed. I have uh, played people's basements and I've played huge stadiums for a hundred thousand people. So I've, I've done all of it. Uh, and unfortunately my career, it, it'll bounce back and forth. We're playing, uh, this weekend, even I'm playing a, in Birmingham, Alabama at a little crappy bar. And then Saturday we're playing a great venue that'll have eight or eight or 900 people at it. Um, so it all depends. I've done it all and you have to be willing to do it all. Um, I think. Yeah, at this point you're very willing to do anything, but we also don't get the greatest paychecks because of that. And people tend to start cutting back because they think we're willing to do things for nothing. There is a line that you have to draw eventually of what, as far as monetarily, what you won't do. Um, and that's okay. You have to be willing to get to the point of sometimes it's better to stay home, but at your guys stage and where I was at when I was your age, I played anywhere and everywhere for whatever I could get. So, um, and I did that. <laughs> and I did that while I had twin sons and like, it was tough. It was, it was, it was very tough. How many shows uh, did you play like when um, when uh, Troubadours, Vagabonds, and Thieves was was out? What, how many shows a year were you averaging around that time? Um, we've always kind of maintained the same schedule in this band as far as the number of shows. We do somewhere between 80 and 100 every year. So not, a, not like a ton compared to a lot of people, but enough to where we're staying busy. Um, so some years it's closer to 80, some years it's closer to hundred. Uh, this year we're closer to 80, even though we've been really busy since April, but, um, I had a vocal hemorrhage and so I had to take February, March off. Um, I was actually on a no speaking thing. So, uh, because of that, our schedules was a little lighter this year, even though it felt like once we did start touring, it, it was, it was slamming for a while. So. Is there a minimum number of shows you think somebody should be playing um, per year if they're trying to grow their band? Yeah, if you're not hitting probably the 60 mark, you're probably not really growing very much. Um, and, and it's not just about growing a crowd. It is about growing a crowd, but it's also about just getting better. Um, there's nothing that can replace being in front of people and 
you just get better really quickly. And especially if you can hold the same lineup together. Um, one of the reasons I think that Jason Isbell's band is so amazing is they've been together 10 years. And so they are so instinctual. They know what each other's going to do. We, we play, speaking of covers, we play a, the Billy Preston song circles. We'll go around in circles and the bass player sings it. Um, and every now and then we'll do this like solo thing where me and the guitar player will start doing, you know, that song's like, it's got a quarter note thing. Will it go around in circles? That thing. We'll start doing the, this guitar thing we do in harmony where it's triplets. So it's like, and it sort of instinctually like slows the thing down. So this past weekend, we were at a great venue we play and we slowed it down and sort of forced everyone to slow down with us. And then I started singing Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel over it. And they just instinctually went into it and we covered it and then we stopped and we went right back to Will It Go Round of Circles. Nobody knew we were gonna do that. We have never done it before but we know each other enough instinctually that we can do that. And then we'll come back right back out in the same spot. Um, but that's only because we've played 300 shows together. You, you can't, it's not a matter of just putting good musicians together and being able to do that. There's a certain amount of innate communication that bands learn just from playing together over and over again. And sometimes train wrecking stuff. Sometimes you do that stuff. The reason you can do it after 300 shows is because you tried it at show 150 and it train wrecked. So uh, anyway, yeah, I think 60 shows is the minimum. Um, 50, 60. If you're not doing at least that much, you're probably not growing much. We're really close to time. Does anybody have anything else before we, we say adios? Is a booking agent a thing of the past? Did you hear that? Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, although they are getting much, much more picky in who they work with. And there's this thing, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer uh, but here, but uh, there's this thing that as um, bigger artists that are kind of like, they were big at one time, but now they're kind of, they're not like Eagles nostalgia, because Eagles nostalgia is like, they can still sell at stadiums. But like people that had like a few hits, like three or four hits 10 years ago, uh, like a, I, I mean, I hate their music, but Papa Roach, or there's a, there's a country guy, Clay Walker, that had like three or four top 10 hits between five and 10 years ago, probably more like 10 years ago now. They are starting to play venues that have like a thousand seats or 800 seats, which is then bumping bands like me that did that down farther, which is then I'm bumping bands that would be local playing your local cool venue, like our local artists off and so there is this press down thing to where uh it's getting harder and harder for bands to get regular bookings that aren't out there touring all the time and haven't been doing it for a while and booking agents are getting much more picky because the the margins are just not what they used to be but um to really achieve a certain level of success you absolutely are going to have to have a booking agent there's certain places, I mean, we've been lucky, we book ourselves and we play massive festivals. We do tours in Africa, Asia, all that stuff. But there is still for us, there's even a glass ceiling. I mean, I can't call up uh, Murray's Basketball Arena and be like, hey, we want to put on a show. Who's the promoter there? They're not going to book us there. I mean, they, they would book Avid Brothers if their booking agent called, but they're not going to book us. So uh, yes, booking agents are still a present day thing that is much needed at a certain level. I would say though, as a new artist though, don't wait on a booking agent to get yourself busy. You get yourself busy 
and then wait till a booking agent comes asking you to book you. All right, I think, I think for the folks that probably have to go, we should call it right there. Cool.